Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Warning, this episode is not for little ears. Welcome, you lovelies, for your Friday dose of creepy tales. The week is over, or at least almost over for many of you, and I hope I can accelerate your workday or bring on a restful night. Today I bring you Autopilot by ScarJo, a tale of worst-case forgetfulness. Up next after that is Pale Luna, an old game brings up new clues to an unsolved case written by Mikhail Honorides. And lastly, Anomalies, where old mysterious images tell of terrifying tales in the past. Written by Rembidus. For the last story, I'll be putting up images from 1 to 8 on my Patreon so you can follow with me and put the pictures to the story that I narrate. Now mates, before I start, a huge thank you to my Ode Night Tea Titans. Matthew J. Bauer, the decoder. It was Matthew's skill set in IT that brought the police to finding Paluna. He's a detective and a cybersecurity specialist with a flair for mystery. They may have been unable to find the killer, but the decoder is only a mere couple of steps behind finding them. Trust in his skill. Maya, the medium. Her ability to detect missing people is what initiated the search and follow-up documentation surrounding the anomaly pictures. With a simple touch of the image, she was able to recall information that no one had ever known or heard, to only arrive at the destination to find that all her statements were true. The medium travels the planar weave with great skill. Mates, thank you so much for being amazing and supporting me at this level. I also really enjoyed writing your introductions today, tying you both to the story that I cover. I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as I do writing and narrating them for you. Again, you lovelies, thank you so, so much. And my two lovelies that are my white tea warlords. I own cows. The Hufessa, known for his charm and wit, the Hufessa was brought in to locate missing high-priced cows from the key farms amongst the anomalies impacted members. It's his expertise in hoofology that allowed him to track cows back to the origin point of anomaly pictures, one of which was the Axeman case. And Lee Bauer, aka the Energizer, some people drink energy drinks, protein shakes, or take supplements to keep them going on a case. Not the Energizer, oh no. Motivation is his only requirement, and nothing gets his heart rate pumping more than an unsolved case. Thank you both for your support. You two have also directly helped in setting up my mobile sound booth, and for that, I am ever grateful. Thank you both, mates. And of course, my Elgrain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. Cheers to all you lovelies for bringing out the best in this podcast. Also, to all of you that have sent me emails and are awaiting a response, I promise you that by this weekend, I'll have replied. Thanks for your patience, mates. You're a bunch of legends. Now turn the lights off, turn up the sound, and get ready for something different.
Autopilot. Have you ever forgotten your phone? When did you realize you'd forgotten it? I'm guessing you didn't just smack your forehead and exclaim, Damn! A propos of nothing. The realization probably didn't dawn on you spontaneously. More likely, you reached for your phone, pouring open your pocket or handbag, and were momentarily confused by it not being there. Then you did a mental recap of the morning's events. Shit. In my case, my phone's alarm woke me up as normal, but I realized the battery was lower than I expected. It was a new phone, and it had this annoying habit of leaving applications running that drained the battery overnight. So I put it onto charge while I showered, instead of into my bag like normal. It was a momentary slip from the routine, but that was all it took. Once in the shower, my brain got back into the routine it follows every morning. Forgotten. This wasn't just me being clumsy. As I later researched, this is a recognized brain function. Your brain doesn't work just on one level. It works on many. Like when you're walking somewhere, you think about your destination and avoiding hazards. But you don't need to think about keeping your legs moving properly. If you did, the entire world would turn into one massive, hilarious co-op cosplay. I wasn't thinking about regulating my breathing. I was thinking whether I should grab a coffee on the drive to work. I did. I wasn't thinking about moving my breakfast through my intestines. I was wondering whether I'd finish on time to pick up my daughter, Emily, from the nursery after work or get stuck with another late fee. This is the thing. There's a level of your brain that just deals with routine so that the rest of the brain can think about other things. Think about it. Think about your last commute. What do you actually remember? Probably little, if anything. Most common journeys blur into one, and recalling any one in particular is scientifically proven to be difficult. Do something often enough and it becomes routine. Keep doing it and it stops being processed by the thinking bit of the brain and gets relegated to a part of the brain dedicated to dealing with routine. Your brain keeps doing it without you thinking about it. Soon, you think about your routine to work as much as you do keeping your legs moving when you walk. Most people call it autopilot, but there's danger there. If you have a break in your routine, your ability to remember and account for the break is only as good as your ability to stop your brain going into routine mode. My ability to remember my phone being on the counter is only as reliable as my ability to stop my brain entering morning routine mode, which would dictate that my phone is actually in my bag. But I didn't stop my brain entering routine mode. I got in the shower as normal. Routine started. Exception forgotten. Autopilot engaged. My brain was back in the routine. I showered, I shaved, the radio forecasted amazing weather. I gave Emily her breakfast and loaded her into the car. She was so adorable that morning. She complained about the bad sun in the morning, blinding her, saying it stopped her having a little sleep on the way to the nursery. And I left. That was the routine. It didn't matter that my phone was on the counter, charging silently. My brain was in the routine, and in the routine my phone was in my bag. This is why I forgot my phone. 
Not clumsiness, not negligence, nothing more than my brain entering routine mode and overwriting the exception. Autopilot engaged. I left for work. It's a swelteringly hot day already. The bad sun had been burning since before my traitorously absent phone woke me up. The steering wheel was burning hot to the touch when I sat down. I think I heard Emily shift over behind my driver's seat to get out of the glare. But I got to work, submitted the report, attended the morning meeting. It's not until I took a quick coffee break and reached for my phone that the illusion was shattered. I did a mental restep. I remembered the dying battery. I remembered putting it on charge. I remembered leaving it there. My phone was on the counter. Autopilot disengaged. Again, there lies the danger. Until you have that moment, the moment you reach for your phone and shatter the illusion, that part of the brain is still in routine mode. It has no reason to question the facts of the routine. That's why it's a routine. The act of repetition. It's not as if anyone could say, Why didn't you remember your phone? Didn't it occur to you? How could you forget? You must be negligent. This is to miss the point. My brain was telling me the routine was completed as normal, despite the fact that it wasn't. It wasn't that I forgot my phone. According to my brain, according to the routine, my phone was in my bag. Why would I think to question it? Why would I check? Why would I suddenly remember, out of nowhere, that my phone was on the counter. My brain was wired into the routine, and the routine was that my phone was in my bag. The day continued to bake. The morning haze gave way to the relentless fever heat of the afternoon. Tarmac bubbled. The direct beams of heat threatened to crack the pavement. People swapped coffees for ice smoothies. Jackets discarded, sleeves rolled up, ties loosened. Brows mopped. The park slowly filled with sunbathers and barbecues. Window frames threatened to warp. The thermometer continued to swell. Thank fuck the officers were air-conditioned. But as ever, the furnace of the day gave way to cooler evenings. Another day, another dollar. Still cursing myself for forgetting my phone. I drove home. The day's heat had baked the inside of the car releasing a horrible smell from somewhere. When I arrived on the driveway, the stones crunching comfortably under my tires, my wife greeted me at the door. Where's Emily? Fuck. As if the phone wasn't bad enough. After everything, I'd left Emily at the fucking nursery after all. I immediately sped back to the nursery. I got to the door and started practicing my excuses, wondering vainly if I could charm my way out of a late fee. I saw a piece of paper stuck to the door. Due to vandalism overnight, please use the side door. Today only. Overnight? What? The door was fine this morning. I froze. My knees shook. Vandals. A change in the routine. My phone was on the counter. I hadn't been here this morning. My phone was on the counter. I'd driven past because I was drinking my coffee. I'd not dropped off Emily. My phone was on the counter. 
She'd moved her seat. I hadn't seen her in the mirror. My phone was on the counter. She'd fallen asleep out of the bad sun. She didn't speak when I drove past the nursery. My phone was on the counter. She'd changed the routine. My phone was on the counter. She changed the routine and I'd forgotten to drop her off. My phone was on the counter. Nine hours. That car. That baking sun. No air. No water. No power. No help. That heat. A steering wheel too hot to touch. That smell. I walked to the car door numb. I opened the door. My phone was on the counter, and my daughter was dead. Autopilot. Disengaged. Pale Luna In the last decade and a half, it's become infinitely easier to obtain exactly what you're looking for. By way of a couple of keystrokes, the internet has made it all too simple to use a computer to change reality. An abundance of information is merely a search engine away, to the point where it's hard to imagine life as any different. Yet, a generation ago when the words streaming and torrent were meaningless, save for conversations about water. People met face-to-face -to, -face to conduct software swap parties, trading games and applications on sharply labeled five and a quarter inch floppies. Of course, most of the time, the meets were a way for frugal, community-minded individuals to trade popular games like King's Quest and Maniac Mansion amongst themselves. However, a few early programming talents designed their way onto computer games to share amongst their circle of acquaintances who in turn would pass it on. Until, if fun and well-designed enough, an independently developed game had its place in the collection of aficionados across the country. Think of it as the 80s equivalent of a viral video. Pale Luna, on the other hand, was never circulated outside of the San Francisco Bay Area. All known copies have been long disposed of. All computers that have ever run the game now detritus buried under layers of filth and polystyrene. This fact is attributed to a number of rather abstruse design choices made by its programmer. Pale Luna was a text adventure in the vein of Zork and the lurking horror at a time when said genre was swiftly going out of fashion. Upon booting the program, the player was presented with a screen almost completely black except for the text. You are in a dark room. Moonlight shines through the window. There is gold in the corner, along with a shovel and a rope. There is a door to the east. Command. So began the game that one writer for a long out-of-print fanzine decried as enigmatic, nonsensical, and completely unplayable as the only commands that the game would accept were Pick up gold Pick up shovel Pick up rope Open door And Go east The player was soon presented with the following 
Reap your reward. Pale Luna smiles at you. You are in a forest. There are paths to the north, west, and east. Command. What quickly infuriated the few who played the game was the confusing and buggy nature of the second screen onward. Only one of the directional decisions would be the correct one. For example, on this occasion, a command to go in a direction other than north would lead to the system freezing, requiring the operator to hard reboot the entire computer. Further, any subsequent screens seem to merely repeat the above text, with the difference being only the directions available. Worse still, the standard text adventure commands appeared to be useless. The only accepted non-movement related prompts use gold, which caused the game to display the message not here, use shovel, which brought up not now, and use rope, which prompted the text you've already used this. Most who played the game progressed a couple of screens into it before becoming fed up by having to constantly reboot and tossing the disc in disgust, writing off the experience as a shoddily programmed farce. However, there is one thing about the world of computers that remains true. No matter the era, some people who use them have way too much time on their hands. A young man by the name of Michael Nevins decided to see if there was more to Pale Luna than what met the eye. Five hours and 33 screens worth of trial and error, and unplugged computer cords later, he finally managed to make the game display different text. The text in this new area read, Pale Luna smiles wide. There are no paths. Pale Luna smiles wide. The ground is soft. Pale Luna smiles wide. Here, command. It was another hour still before Nevins stumbled upon the proper combination of phrases to make the game progress any further. Dig hole, drop gold, then fill hole. This caused the screen to display, Congratulations, 40.24248, minus 121.4434. Upon which the game ceased to accept commands, requiring the user to reboot one last time. After some deliberation, Nevins came to the conclusion that the number referred to lines of latitude and longitude. The coordinates led to a point in the sprawling forest that dominated the nearby Lassen Volcanic Park. As he possessed much more free time than sense, Nevins vowed to see Pale Luna through to its ending. The next day, armed with a map, a compass, and a shovel, he navigated the park's trails, noting with amusement how each turn he made corresponded roughly to those that he took in-game. Though he initially regretted bringing the cumbersome digging tool on a mere hunch, the path similarly all but confirmed his suspicions that the journey would end with him face to face with an eccentric's buried treasure. Out of breath after a tricky struggle to the coordinates, he was pleasantly surprised by a literal stumble upon a patch of uneven dirt, shoveling as excitedly as he was. It would be an understatement to say that he was taken aback when his heavy strokes unearthed the badly decomposing head of a blonde-haired little girl. Nevins promptly reported the situation to the authorities. The girl was identified as Karen Paulson, 11, 
reported as missing to the Santiago Police Department a year and a half prior. Efforts were made to track down the programmer of Pale Luna, but the nearly anonymous legal grey area in which the software swapping community operated inexplicably led to many dead ends. Collectors have been known to offer upward of six figures for an authentic copy of the game. The rest of Karen's body was never found. Anomaly Greetings. I guess I should say up front that I'm new here, so be patient with me, as I don't know all the rules or etiquette or whatnot. A friend of mine linked me to this board after I told him the story and showed him the materials I'm about to share with you. He thinks some of you will appreciate it, but to be honest, from where I'm sitting, this site seems more like a haven for idiots than a serious paranormal image board. Whatever. I'm motivated to share this stuff and need to do so anonymously, for reasons which will become clear. Technically, I'll be breaking the law, but if I understand how this place works, this thread will disappear in a day or so anyway. Here's the deal. I'm a production editor at a small independent publisher in the US. I won't say which or where, so don't ask, as I'd like to keep my job. The pay isn't that great but it's an easy gig, and I like the people I work with. A lot of what we publish are what you'd call coffee table books. The kind people flip through when they're bored, but almost nobody ever reads cover to cover. Bland pictorial histories of certain cities or states that sell well in regional gift shops. The occasional book of maps or a biography. A few museums outsource their gallery catalogues to us. That kind of thing. The work is boring, but it's steady and we get enough jobs and our books make enough money to stay afloat, which is a lot more than most small presses can say these days. Because we've been around a while, our name is somewhat known to history buffs, and people who think they're an expert on such and such town in nowhere Idaho or some esoteric topic nobody really cares about. We get a lot of unsolicited manuscripts from people that really shouldn't be writing books, and unsolicited CDs full of photographs from people that shouldn't be taking pictures. Because we're small and don't have a separate acquisition editor position, the job of going through this slush pile gets passed around the office. Very rarely somebody will find something worth pursuing and pitch it to the rest of us, but our senior editor slash publisher gets the final say. For the last nine months, I've been working more or less non-stop on a book that everybody at the office was pretty excited about. Our copy editor found it during his turn with the pile. An old guy I won't name had contacted us out of the blue and offered us the chance to publish his rare archival photo collection, provided we treat the subject matter with the respect and seriousness he felt it deserved. To use his term and what was going to be the book's title, the photos were all anomalies. That is to say, they depicted something out of the ordinary or otherwise inexplicable. Something that usually had an equally interesting story to go along with it. Most of them were from the first half of the 20th century. Like I said, it's not the kind of thing we normally publish, but the few samples the guy sent in with his pitch letter were pretty compelling. And once we had seen the rest of them, heard a few of the stories, 
and realized that none of these pictures were widely known, we knew we had something that would get people's attention. The format was going to be simple and classy, with a lot of white space and breathing room. Each photo would appear as a high-quality print on the right-hand page, followed by a blank left-hand page, and then a couple of paragraphs to caption each photo on the following right-hand page. From the very beginning, the guy was a nightmare to work with, and the job took forever because he refused to send in more than one document at a time. He would send me a certified mail, I would get it, scan it, and mail it back certified, and only then would he send the next one. He seemed to think he had an extremely valuable collection and was hugely paranoid about losing it, so he only risked one item at a time. In the end, we spent so much money on mailing costs that it would have been cheaper to fly me to where the old guy lived with a scanner and a laptop. We were maybe a third of the way through the production process, when this fucking guy pulled the rug out from under us. Somebody had offered him a large sum of money for the photos, way more than we were offering to the book rights, on the condition that the book gets shit-canned and the photos stay out of the public eye. We demanded he come in for a face-to-face -face and tried to reason with him, and cater to his pride and desire for scholarly acclaim. And for a few days it seemed like it had worked. But when he got back home, he flipped again and started cursing out me and my senior editor on the phone, demanding we shelve the book. He hired a lawyer who came up with some BS to void his contract. And then he threatened us with a lawsuit that would bankrupt us if we went ahead with the project and lost. To add insult to injury, the law firm sent his annoying little IT guy to our office to make sure the materials were wiped from our computers. Because the vast majority of it existed on my machine, and I had spent literally months of my life on the project, I felt, and still feel, the most violated and bitter about the whole thing. Somebody should benefit from all that work, hence my reasons for coming here. Unfortunately, I don't have the high-resolution scans I made of the photos, but... I did keep working draft of the original captions and 14 medium-res placeholder thumbnails that Quark created as I was laying out the original version of the book. Don't ask me why we're still using Quark. It was what we know and what we paid for a long time ago. I'm not supposed to, but I occasionally take home the working Quark files to tweak on my home machine. The full file? with the full res images embedded, gets way too large and unwieldy to bring home with me. Most of the time, I'm just experimenting with fonts and layout options anyway, so I don't embed the images until the end. Anyway, after all this shit went down, I discovered that I had a working file on my home machine of what we had done so far. So I printed to PDF and then stripped the text and images from that PDF file. You folks will be the beneficiaries of that. Just to be clear, I don't claim anything with regards to the veracity and provenance of these photos. I'm not here to convince you they're real. I'm just putting them out there because I think they deserve to be seen and not hidden in some rich prick's private collection. Photo 1. The Collinwood Fire. This is the last known photo taken inside the Lakeview School in Collinwood, Ohio, before it was consumed by fire on March 4th. 
killing 172 students, two teachers and one rescuer. The fire started when a stealing joist ignited from a nearby steam pipe. Flames blocked escape routes and a stampede that trapped a large number of victims in a stairwell where they were cooked alive. Additional casualties were incurred when burning students jumped from the second and third story windows. Everyone in this photo perished, except for Mr. Olsen, seated at the far right in the back row. The spectral artifacts in the photo remained unexplained. Photo 2. Charlie Noonan's Last Interview Charlie Noonan was an amateur folklorist who traveled throughout the South and Southwestern United States during the early years of the 20th century, collecting tall tales and stories of the supernatural. According to his wife, Ellie, Charlie was told a story one day by an Oklahoma farmer about a strange woman who lived alone on an isolated property in the Panhandle. The farmer claimed the woman was not a woman at all, but something else, something that hid its true nature beneath a headscarf and was never seen without a large dog by its side. Noonan was apparently intrigued, enough to try searching for the woman during one of his research road trips. He was never seen again. Ellie Noonan was later contacted by a Tulsa pawnbroker who remembered reading about her husband's disappearance in the papers. After finding his name engraved on a camera sold to him by an itinerant, the pawnbroker returned the camera, and Mrs. Noonan had the film inside, developed in the hopes of finding a clue as to his whereabouts. This was the only photo of the role. Unfortunately, neither the location of the property nor the name of the farmer who told him the story was recorded in Noonan's notes. Photo 3 The Death of John Ulsted This prophetically torn photograph depicts a regimental color guard of the Union Army, one month before they marched into battle at Antietam, September 1862. The gentleman on the far right, named John Ulsted, had the right side of his face and right arm blown off by cannon fire at the start of these hostilities. It is unknown exactly when the damage to the photo occurred. Photo 4 The Axeman of New Orleans Edward Martel was an unsuccessful French photographer and inventor who traveled throughout the US during the first two decades of the 20th century, trying to drum up interest and investors for a device that added timer and automatic exposure features to Kodak's popular line of folding brownie cameras. During his travels, he took thousands of automated photos to test and refine his invention. Often he would wake up early, set up a hidden camera in an inconspicuous spot on the streets of whatever city he happened to be in, and then walk to a nearby cafe or bar, so that he could capture candid scenes of daily life to remember his travels by. The best of these photos were selected for Martel's one and only gallery show in Paris, 1924. Unfortunately, Martel died penniless and alone, and unknown in 1955, and it was left to his daughter, Jeanne, to sort through the boxes and boxes of photos he left behind, to see what should be kept and what could be discarded. During this process, she came across this photo taken in New Orleans on the morning of October 28th, 1919, a few hours before Martel boarded a steamer ship and returned to France. It turns out that Martel hated motion blur in his photographs because he thought they would reflect badly on the speed and accuracy of his lens mechanism. 
This prejudice made him cast aside and overlook what was probably the most important photo he ever took. What makes this photo so special? The night before it was taken, the notorious and still unidentified serial killer, known only as the Axeman of New Orleans, had committed his last murder, hacking Mike Peppertone to death in his bedroom and then fleeing the scene just as Peppertone's wife was discovering the body. Could this be him returning to his residence? It is impossible to say, but if it is, the image appears to belie the legend based on the shaky testimony of Pauline and Mary Bruno and prevailing prejudice of the time that only a black man was capable of such savagery. Photo 5. The Grand Caverns Cryptids This photo was taken in 1895 by an amateur spelunker slash photographer named Oren Jeffries while exploring an unmapped section of Grand Caverns in southern western Virginia. At the time it was taken, Jeffries was conducting photographic experiments using super long exposures to see if anything at all could be captured in the total absence of light, otherwise known as cave darkness. He would situate himself on level ground, extinguish his lantern, and then open the lens of his homemade box camera for as long as he could stand the darkness. During one of these experiments, he heard something approach from the deeper recesses of the cave. Frightened, Jeffries abandoned his experiment and set off one of the blitzlitched flashes he used for taking traditional photos underground. According to the report he later gave to a local newspaper, Jeffries saw three humanoid creatures staring at him from the shadows and took off running in the other direction and didn't stop running until he was topside. Several days later, he returned with three other men to retrieve his box camera. This is the image that was recorded on the film inside. Photo 6. The Harlow Twins 1938, Evergreen Park Billy and Stevie Harlow were riding in the front seat with their mother Tammy when their Ford sedan collided head-on with a Chrysler. During the collision, the car spun in such a way as to impact two additional vehicles. Tammy Harlow survived, but the boys were ejected through the windshield and killed instantly. A crime scene photographer from the local paper took this shot as a crew of volunteers worked frantically to free John Downing, the driver of the Chrysler. It appears that Billy and Stevie stuck around to watch. Photo 7. The Sorensen Tragedy The Sorensons were a Danish family who immigrated to the United States sometime between 1905 and 1906. They arrived with their eldest son, Anders, seen on the donkey and settled on a farmstead in Missouri. Three more children, Simone, Fricke, and Mathilde, center, right, and the wagon respectively, soon followed. This photo, taken in 1916, captures all of the children a few weeks before the tragedy. The three oldest kids were apparently playing fort in the hay barn and must have fallen asleep. Their father, Nicholas, drove a wooden hay sweep into the pile and dismembered all three in locations accurately suggesting by the floor in the photo. Mathilde, the youngest, was inside the house with her mother at the time and was not hurt. According to the son of a neighbor, later interviewed by the author, the donkey later died in equally hideous fashion by getting its head caught in a barbed wire fence and nearly decapitating itself in the frenzy to get free. 
this final detail could not be corroborated. Photo 8. The Spectre of Viola Peters. Viola Peters was a well-born spinster who lived alone in the small rural town McKaysville, Georgia. She was much loved in her community for her charitable contributions to the Baptist Church, the soup kitchen and the local orphanage, especially during the Depression when those institutions subsisted almost entirely on her largesse. In July 1935, Viola was brutally raped and murdered by a drifter named Tom Cullen, who had worked briefly at the nearby copper refinery. Cullen proceeded to stay on in Viola's house and savage her corpse for an additional 17 days before he was caught and captured. A posse of enraged locals stormed the county jail, took Cullen and lynched him from the old bridge over the Tekoa River. This photo was taken by Garrett Killian, a witness to the lynching, and caused quite a stir when it was published a few days later in the Atlanta Constitution. To most, it suggested that Viola's spirit achieved some measure of peace by attending her killer's execution, but some twisted minds saw in her forlorn countenance a longing to get one last look at her one and only lover. And the last five photo stories will be read next week. Mates, I hope you loved the anomaly story. The terrifying and all too realistic child being forgotten in a car tale. And lastly, the story that ended in a cold case. Because I loved all three. Mates, no iTunes or Patreon plug tonight. I just want to say to you that you're awesome. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, and doubly so, because you're listening here with me. <laughs> Stay brilliant, folks, which won't be hard for you lot. And as always, till next, we meet.